Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 22 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to speak with Pablo Espitia. After almost one year in the saddle, as he cycles from Portugal to China following the Silk Road. After graduating from university in Florida, Pablo decided to take his passion for geography, sustainability, and the environment and combine them with his desire to travel the world and explore different cultures, landscapes, and languages. Throughout this adventure, Pablo has also been raising money to create scholarships that will help students at Florida International University, as the cost of university education has dramatically increased over the past 30 years and is now out of reach for a large number of people. Pablo, welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Chris, for having me. It's a pleasure, like always been in uh, something like this. Why don't you start by telling us about yourself? Oh, uh, sure. So um, first of all, my, my whole name, I guess, would be Pablo Espitia. I was born in Colombia, uh, Bogota, the capital. Uh, I moved to the States um, about nine years ago. Uh, I've been living in Miami for that time. I went to school, high school, and university there, where I did track and field, athletics, mostly jumps, sprints. I also graduated with a degree in geography and another one in sustainability and the environment. I'm 25 years old, and man, I I love to travel. <laughs> and what made you decide to do a, a bike tour across Europe and Asia in particular? When I when I was looking up all like the different routes that you can go on on a bike or I mean you can go anywhere on a bike to be honest but when I was looking the most something that I would really enjoy or or something that would really challenge me it was Eurasia just because since I I'm from Colombia I live in the states I really wanted a total change from that okay. and many people do Alaska to Argentina or the other way around and stuff like that. that. That was a very popular one. And that was my first choice, but I'm a Spanish uh, speaker. I also speak English. And I, I just wanted something that would be completely different in culture and landscape and everything. So I decided to go towards Eurasia. Okay. And I guess like starting in Portugal, I mean, it's not because you're like, oh, I'm close to Spain and the language I know. It was just convenience, right? You're like you're starting east to west so or west to east. Oh, so originally my plan was to start in China. I have a cousin living in China. So I was, okay, I'll start in China and then make my way west to Portugal. Oh, okay. But by the time I was planning this trip, I, I was I, I started in January and I thought, OK, like it would be it could be a little too cold if I start Asia in winter. And this is my first ever cycling trip. So I was like, uh, let me not put everything at once, not like culture shock and uh, the like getting used to the bike let me go step by step so i decided to switch and go towards uh, stars in lisbon which is something more familiar in mm -hmm. terms of language and culture and then get get used to the the cycling part first and then start getting towards asia later on the trip okay and uh 
I mean, being a Spanish speaker, um, I guess Portugal's very easy, right? It was not. No, I mean, what? it's not. It wasn't hard at all. But it's. I thought it was going to be a lot more to communicate with people. Mm -hmm. But people like the Portuguese spoken in Portugal is be more. I don't know if it's pure or corrupted or something, but it, it was very difficult for me to understand. Okay. And even for them to understand my, it's not like Brazilian Portuguese that you can speak Spanish and they understand and I understand them, but no, it's, it, it's different in Portugal. So Pablo, do you find your track and field experience has helped you as a cyclist on this tour? Uh, that's a good question. I think, yes, like in terms of, of course, like your physical ability and how you're in shape you are. Uh, I think it did help a lot of people on the way. And my friends are like, oh, did you train for this trip? And like, did you any type of like preparation, physical preparation before starting the trip? And like, to be honest, I got on like a, one of those in-place bikes. I don't know how they're called. A bike trainer? Yeah, like a, one of those. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to try to train. And I never did, but I, I kept in shape a lot. And I think that really helped. And I, I never felt like I was out of shape during my trip. Like I, I never felt like, oh, wow, like this is too hard or like physically tiring or anything like that. It's, it was very comfortable uh, once I started. So before this trip, you hadn't actually done any bike touring, but you you must have known like how to cycle and had some previous life experience on a bike, yeah? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, like I guess most people have a bike and all that. And I had a bike back home, but I honestly had like I have experience with bike. I know how to ride a bike and all that, but I wasn't really a cyclist at all. Like I didn't do any like cycling. Okay events or anything like that uh, back home or even like i live in miami and miami is like very bike unfriendly i guess okay. not very friendly for, for cyclists yeah so it's hard to use a bike um but yeah of course like i i had and even before the trip i got even more into learning about uh, fixing and repairing and all about bikes what did your friends and family think when you said yo guys i'm, I'm gonna cycle from portugal to china <laughs> <laughs> that that's a good one too uh so first like i for a good maybe a month or two i was just planning my head and kind of thinking it through and researching and doing all that uh and i didn't really tell anyone and then when i when i let uh, a few people know all of my close family and uh, friends i think the first like my my cousin i told my cousin she's like oh my god that's like that's crazy that's very cool and like she was very excited uh, when I told my mom, I, I think she was just like, she was she was very like supportive, but she was like not very. She I don't think she believed I was gonna do it. Like okay. I, I think she was just like, yeah, okay, like good for you, like <laughs> that's a good idea. Um, I think she she wasn't convinced. I think I think she thought I wasn't gonna do it uh, until I actually started taking the steps of buying the bike and doing all this, and she's like, oh, okay, now this guy is going a little crazy now. Uh, but everyone was very supportive and like, of course, they thought I was crazy. And especially when you tell them the countries you are planning on crossing and um, the things you're planning on doing. And uh, but most people were very supportive and they're like very happy for you. And they think you're crazy, but in a good way. OK, now let me ask you, because um, I mean, shit, you just graduated from university. So most people that graduate university are in debt up to their eyeballs. And here you decide to spend a bunch of money and bike across. Where did the money come from? How did you do this? How did you finance it? So I graduated uh, university in uh, at the end of 2017. Okay. At that time, I, I started working at Nike, one of the Nike stores in Miami, or like the big flagship store in Miami as the running expert and uh, one of the run club managers. Oh, and I worked there for a year. Oh, okay. I was able to save up enough money. But not only that, because I went to university, I mean, university in the States is very expensive, but I was I was lucky enough to to have a athletic scholarship for my four years. Mm -hmm. Or for uh, actually uh, three of my four years and then academic scholarships throughout my four years. So when I graduated, I was very fortunate 
to not have any debt and be able to like be <laughs> free and not worried about having to pay back my pool or anything like that. And like you mentioned before, I am raising funds for a scholarship. And that's one of the reasons because I had that privilege and that, that yeah, the privilege of not having to pay back or be worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want other people to have that too. Okay. And um, that's awesome. I mean, that's all really, really great stuff. And I'm, I'm glad to see that you're not massively in debt. It's good that you found that niche, that, yeah. that thing you could capitalize on and figuring out how to succeed. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. What kind of bike are you using for this tour? So since I wasn't much of a biker before, like mm-hmm. I, I did so much re- research uh, before the trip. And once you go online, I mean, you've done cycling trips. There's so many websites and so many opinions and, on bikes. Uh, and then there's like, you can get like the really expensive new ones that have like everything and or like you can go and even make your own like bamboo or <laughs> bike and stuff like that. So after like a few times of like talking to people I know about bikes and stuff like that, I met a guy that um, like it was such a like random coin. Like I was at work and this guy just pulled up with like, two panniers. And I was like, oh, what, what? Like I've never seen that in my life. And just when I'm thinking of doing this, this guy just pulls up and, uh-huh. and like in front of me. And I was like, hey, like what are what are you doing? He's like, no, I work down the down the street. So I talked to him. And he's like, oh. He gave me uh, like a few um, advice and he told me like, uh, if you, like maybe just uh, find a bike online and you can build it yourself. So I went online and I got a secondhand uh, frame and it's just a red road, a steel frame bike. Mm-hmm. And I just uh, built it myself. Uh, it's a 26 inch wheel, a uh, steel frame. It's kind of heavy because it's secondhand and it's older. Yeah. Uh, it's got two front, I mean, uh, one front pack and uh, rack and then one in the back mm-hmm. but yeah it's nothing like nothing special it's just a, a road bike older model and how much did it cost you in the end for the, to build that bike oh it cost me about 275 dollars perfect that's yeah, good in- i have lots i know lots of people that have spent a couple thousand just to get the bike you know and i'm kind of one of those people <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, several times. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a yeah, super I mean, expensive bike as long as you're you can put in a little bit of wrench work and fix it when it has problems. Yeah, so that's one. Of, that's one of the things I told myself because I, I I had enough money saved that I was like, okay, if I buy a, a new bike, it probably won't give me enough uh, a lot of trouble, but it would take a, a big chunk of my budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I built one from scratch and for from like an older bike. I'm just going to have to put up with a little more trouble on the road and I'll, I'm just going to have to deal with that. And that's what I told myself. I'm just going to do that. And if something happens, I'm just I'm just going to go ahead and fix it. And I know it's going to happen anyway. So yeah. uh, it's fine. And have you had any problems with it? Oh, man, surprisingly, uh, very few, like very few major problems. Of course, like uh, I've had like flat tires and stuff yeah. like that. But the major uh, big things that has happened was like right before it's my cassette was just worn out yeah so that that was just yeah really bad and in, in Pamir uh, that was the latest thing that happened uh, the uh, back wheel hub yeah, cool. that was completely uh, messed up but yeah uh, on your bike do you use uh, flat bars or drop bars like road bike type bars or more of a just a <coughs> straight bar yeah I, I use just a straight bar I like the wide handle better yeah um it's it's weird for me to i feel like i don't have enough control with a drop bar yeah i mean there's that because drop bars are pretty narrow so it becomes a little bit more wobbly and uh what about for your pedals are you using just normal pedals or do you have like uh, clip-in shoes oh no i have normal pedals i'm not a big fan of the clips i just don't i don't feel free enough to just (laughs) yeah i just don't not a big fan yeah i mean the, the regular well, as like you said, you didn't. You're, you're not a career cyclist beforehand and stuff, and, yeah. and it's, it makes a huge difference. Like if it would be like saying, do you run on a track using normal shoes or do you use picks, right? Like for, oh, okay. for me, okay. I run so on a track using normal shoes because I don't run on tracks much. So yeah, that's true. And what size of tires do you have your bike built up with? Uh, twenty six inch. And are they pretty wide, or are they kind of like they're two point twenty five? If I'm not wrong, two point two five. Yeah. Um, is a twenty six by two point? Yeah, two and a half. I'm pretty sure. Okay. 
And have they been pretty good? Like there's not, have there been many occasions where you're like, oh man, I wish I had massive tires so I could get through this, whatever it is? Yeah, but for the most part, no. I think like um, going through sandy roads or something like that, I think everyone wishes you had like a like a truck tire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, besides that, no, not really. Okay, cool. Um, how much does all your luggage weigh? I recently just weighed it because I I've never done it before. Like I was, I'm not into like weighing and stuff like that. But I just did it because I had to ship my bike. Okay. And with like, all the bags and all and the bike, it's sixty kilos. <laughs> oh, okay. That's 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 a uh, I think. Yeah, just slightly higher than average, maybe lower than some others. Yeah. Uh, what kind of stuff do you carry with you? What is your like? What do your bags look like other than you know your normal stuff like tent, air mattress? Yeah, I have like all the camping stuff and all the cooking and all. Besides clothing, I have my uh, first aid kit, which we all should have. I have a few gifts and souvenirs that I've gotten along the way. Also, like small gifts that people kind of give me. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a big fan of I don't know white sand. And I've collected a few sand samples from different places. So I carry uh, a few sand uh, bottles and even salt from a lake, okay. uh, from a salt lake. I was, but uh, stuff like that and, and food really, but nothing, nothing too, too crazy. Are there any things that you, after you started, you're like, oh man, I didn't need these things with me and then have since gotten rid of or just wish you didn't have with you? Uh, uh Yeah. When I first started, since it was my first one and I I started in winter, I thought winter was going to be a lot worse than I had a lot of clothing. And also mm-hmm. just because uh, I guess we are used to having so much clothing and stuff like that, that I carried things that I really didn't need, like clothing and all stuff that you use at home, but you really don't need anymore. And after that, I just, I, I sent the home once I got to Paris, but yeah. I think it's mostly clothing that I got rid of. I just had too much. Okay. Anything you regret not bringing with you? Not really. I think I did a good research in com- when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, the only thing I didn't get, like I didn't get um, back home, but I got once I got to Europe was a cooking stove. Uh, I just decide, decided to get it once I once I started in Europe. But that was, that was it. Uh, is a cooking uh, stove okay. and I have a gas, a liquid gas stove. Yeah. yeah, perfect. So let's talk about the tour. You first, you were cycling through Europe. So what were some of the highlights of cycling in Europe? And I think you're right. I think it was the perfect place to start a tour and get that experience before you get into the more rugged and wild places, right? Yeah, definitely true. Especially for if, if it's your first one. Uh, like me, I, I really didn't want to jump into that uh, crazy Asian scene, I guess. But yeah, I think the best... Uh, Europe is, is nice. It's such a nice uh, continent. And Portugal and Spain has like very nice views and landscapes and like small little towns. And well, from I think from Europe, when I, I actually wasn't expecting this, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, one of my favorite places was Germany. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's weird because uh, many people say like Germany is like very, I guess just like there's not much to see or like people are just very, uh, how do you say this? Not very like welcoming or just like direct or like, <laughs> but I, I had a great time. Like I met a good amount of people and I, I stayed with a lot of uh, people and I met great people. And I think it was the people that made this country one of the best ones. Okay. But yeah, I think Germany was uh, probably a highlight of Western Europe. And Eastern Europe was another another trip. What was your route through Germany? Did you just follow the Rhine, or did you have a different route? So I I entered Germany from Strasbourg in France, mm-hmm. and I I made basically a straight line through the south. So I went from there. I went through the Black Forest, and then I got to the um, Danube River, yeah. and I stayed in the Danube River until basically Serbia. But yeah, basically, it was a straight line crossing the south of Germany. Oh, okay, so yeah, you didn't you didn't go up north and stuff towards like Berlin or anything either. Huh? No, yeah, I stayed in the south. I went through like really small towns in the Black Forest, and then stayed in the Danube, going through um, Rangsburg, Ulm, um, and all this 
towns that I'm mm-hmm. getting now. Munich. Did you go to Munich? Uh, yeah, but to Munich, I I stayed with a couchsurfing host in uh, Ingolstadt. And um, I took the train for one to Munich, kind of walked around the city. And then the same day I went back and the next day I kept cycling. Oh, okay. And from Germany, you entered into Austria, I presume? Yes. I stayed on the Danube of, uh, from Germany until Hungary. Mm-hmm. So I went through yeah, Austria, Slovakia, and Hungary. I read in Austria that you, there was a Russian TV show being filmed in where you were couch surfing or something. Yes, that <laughs> that was that was such a, a wild night. I guess um, <laughs> <laughs> it caught me by surprise. Like I, I, you had no idea how it was. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you, it was. I had left Passau, Germany, that morning, and I was. I had to make Linz, Austria, in one day. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna make it a long day get to Linz. I had already talked to the guy from Couchsurfing and I was going to stay mm-hmm. in his place. So I was going, I'm going to go for a long day and rest and it'll be fine. So okay. I get, I get to Linz and get to his place, set up and the guy gets late, uh, gets home really late. And then, which is fine, but I was like, okay, I'm, uh, I don't want to go to sleep and kind of be rude. Cause he wasn't home when I, when I arrived to his place, he, he let me in without him being there. Okay. Uh, and then when he got there, it was kind of late. And then he's like, well, uh, there might be two other guys joining tonight. And I was like, okay, sure. I mean, it's your place. Don't worry. It's fine. And he's like, yeah, they're from Russia. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then he kind of just walks out. And I was getting ready to go to sleep. And I was already, like, laying down. When he walks in with a guy and, a, like, a couple of Russians, and then behind them, there's like a camera crew. And I was like, <laughs> uh, okay. I, I sat up and I was like, hey. And the two Russians are like happy and screaming and like talking loud. And yeah, 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 yeah. Doing all these things. And he looks at me like, I don't know what's going on. And I look at him like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but yeah, basically it was like this. It's a, it's a, Russian reality show they they get two people that don't know each other and they drop them in a place and they have to get from to point B without any phones money or anything oh very uh, cool using just yeah uh, only using people's help um Mm -hmm. and and somehow they got to his place but yeah it was I ended up in that show and I was trying to go to sleep early but Ended up going to sleep like really late because they like having vodka and camera crew is like walking around taking shots and it was just wild but it was such a fun experience and <laughs> I don't know it it just happens and I don't know how <laughs> really cool tell us about Eastern Europe Eastern Europe wow it's that's not in Slovakia I only spent like one day um, really because once you get to if you follow Danube River, yeah. it takes you in and out of Slovakia really quick. And um, I spent a, a, a good amount of time in Serbia just because I have a lot of friends from Serbia Okay. Uh, from school. So I was able to stay with them in the cities they're from. So I stayed with one in the north, then in Belgrade, and then I kept going through the south. But yeah, that was that was another highlight of the of my European trip. It was spending time with uh i guess my friends and seeing people from back home and kind of getting to know serbia and with on their on their turf and from their point of view it was it was great and then i went through bulgaria which is going back into like i guess a european union country and it's 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 a very nice i i really like eastern europe maybe a little more than uh, Western Europe, but mm-hmm. it's it's very nice. What was the what was the contrast that made Eastern Europe nicer than Western Europe? Uh, it's just, I mean, Eastern Europe. So many places are still kind of being rebuilt from whatever conflict they had mm-hmm. in the past. Serbia, it was in the 1990s, and they still have a lot of places that look like they're being reconstructed. In Hungary, Budapest is a, a beautiful city. Uh, there's so many abandoned buildings, and now they're being like re purpose for like clubs yeah hangout places and bars and they're like very nice places so i think it's got that edge many cities have like that edge in eastern europe 
and it, it, it feels a lot more real sometimes in in those countries. Yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, in my mind, Eastern Europe tends to be a lot more family-based. Like there's a strong family link with everybody. And so the people tend to be really friendly and giving. And, and you know, Western Europe's the more developed, like Canada, USA in a sense. And, you know, people have a bit more money and they're a little bit more in their own little zone and they don't really break that mold as much. That That might be... I'm not sure if that's accurate, but that's the sense I get, you know. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Oh, no, no, you're, you're exactly, like, that's, that's exactly what I think, too. Like, I think, like, Western Europe, like, people are very nice, of course, like, yeah, like you said, but Germany. once you hit like, yeah, but once you hit like West uh, Eastern Europe, you get also very nice people, but very welcoming, and they're they're like very happy to like share things with you and like talk to you and like even like it's a hospitality in West and Eastern Europe is a lot better than Western Europe, and mm-hmm. people are just like, so happy to see you. And I think you're having, um, having local friends throughout Serbia really gives you an excellent opportunity to, to like nothing, nothing makes a country like knowing somebody there that can show you the ins and outs of it. And like the, the, the secret wonders, you know, the beautiful gems that people don't know about. Yeah, that's, that's true. And even like, I mean, I've, I've known them for years, but getting to meet their family, it's also like very special and nice. Mm hmm. Let's uh let's jump forward to Turkey and then continue on eastwards. Uh, what was it like cycling in Turkey? And of course, once again, you can tell us about any highlights that you had and maybe suggestions or things you learned that might be helpful to people. Turkey for for a big time of the trip was my favorite country, like hands down. It's such an amazing country in terms of like landscape and uh, food and like people i mean incredible people uh once i got i entered turkey through bulgaria the first stop i camped and then the next day i i was looking for a place to camp and then this guy saw me and he's like no no no, there's a bicycle academy here and they they host cyclists like you and like you can stay there and it's very nice this and that so okay and I saw that Instagram post. It looked really cool. I was like, oh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, if you're ever in Turkey, it's like, and once once I got there, I was like, oh, okay, maybe they do. And I looked at, uh, like, I, I sat down and the, like, the manager brought me a book. And there's, like, this, this book with so many uh, notes from cyclists all over the place. And I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I'm literally, I'm, I'm seeing all these people on Instagram. Like, these people have come like it's such an amazing place and then that was like the first like kind of cool thing that happened to me in turkey and after that it was so much nicer like people are very nice people are like in turkey like they are not afraid to to ask you to um camp in their backyard or like even like stay in a mosque like they don't want you to stay outside it's like it's incredible or at least on in my experience it was such an amazing place and the route, I, I also um, stayed in Istanbul for a while because my mom and my sister visited me for two weeks. So that was also a, a, kind of a good thing that happened. I was able to uh, be with them for two weeks and kind of 
take them around uh, Turkey uh, without the bike and showing them. And then they left again and I, I kept going. Where did you like? Where else did you go that it was really... So I, I'll kind of tell you my route sure. to Turkey. Uh, after Istanbul, uh, first Istanbul, it's such a big and like chaotic city to cycle in that I, to get in the city, I was I was very determined to cycle all the way to um, Airbnb I had. But like I said, my, my chain was acting up and then uh, getting into this, like, no, this, I couldn't really find any safe roads for me to cycle and yeah. trucks were going really fast and very close. So I, I for like the last 35 kilometers or so, I took um, a bus. They took me all the way to the center. And then f- to leave ter- uh, Istanbul, I took the ferry out of Istanbul to Bursa. Okay. Which is a city south, uh, west, uh, not south, but west of Turkey, uh, close to the coast. Mm-hmm. And then I, I got there from Bursa. I went almost a straight line uh, to Gorome in Cap- uh, Cappadocia, like the big. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to call it uh, like the cyclist Mecca. I think like every cyclist that goes to Turkey goes to Cappadocia. <laughs> And from from Cappadocia, I had headed north to Trabzon, and then I stayed on the Black Coast until uh, Georgia. But uh, answering like your question, mm-hmm. one of the uh, highlights I think in Turkey definitely from after I left Bursa, uh, which is is a big city in in Turkey. There's a stretch after a city called Eskişehir. I'm probably like butchering that uh, name. From there to like, well, Cappadocia, mm-hmm. I took like the countryside uh, road and like not really big roads. And I think that was probably the best uh, road I've taken. Uh, I took in Turkey. It was like very remote and like uh, small villages and like there's like cattle and donkeys and small villages everywhere. And people are very nice. There's like different workers from like different parts of turkey so you, you even though it's in the west of turkey you get to meet like uh kurdish people working around and they're like they travel around the country and it's, it's a it was a very nice part of my trip and then i got to cappadocia which is of course like this beautiful uh, ancient rock cave city mm-hmm. with uh, hot air balloons in the morning and yeah that section i think was one of the best ones in the trip thanks you you wanted to go to Iran initially, right? And I think I saw that you applied a few times. Uh, what happened? So, yeah, like I do have an American passport as well. And I travel with both. But I applied with, I, I thought maybe applying with Colombia was going to be easier. Because mm-hmm. just like many South American countries get easier visa to a lot of these countries. And I, I first applied in Istanbul. Uh, I applied online. I went to the embassy. It, it got rejected and uh, like the honest answer they gave me like I went there it's such a, like the embassy is such a mess so like there's really no time to just sit down and ask what to do or why I got mm-hmm. rejected so when I said why the only thing they said it's Colombian passport so like okay so I'm guessing I'm not gonna get a visa with the Colombian passport but even though I tried again online because it's an online visa for yeah. Iran now and um I tried again and it got rejected again. So I was like, I'm going to give it time and maybe apply it in another city. In Georgia, I applied again with an agency just because many people are uh, told me uh, everyone gets it through the agency. And I applied with the agency and the agency replied, oh, just to let you know, Colombian passport, it's a 50-50 chance, 50-50 chance that you'll get it. Uh, so um, just telling you and uh Yes, I mean, I got it three days later. They told me it was rejected, so <laughs> that uh, I couldn't do anything oh. else. I wasn't going to play anymore. Yeah, that sucks. I was surprised because I know like the list for Iran of countries that are denied entry um, unless you're with a tourist uh, a tourist group visa type thing. It's yeah. like Canada, USA, Britain, a couple other weird ones like yeah. Bangladesh. And it's, there's about 10 countries, but... I didn't think any South America. I didn't think like Colombia was on that list. So I thought you guys could just get visa on arrival at the airport or at the border crossing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but 
it was because I really wanted to go to Iran. Mm-hmm. I've heard amazing things about that country, but mm-hmm. it couldn't happen. So how did you change your trip and where did you go? So since I couldn't cross Iran, I, I decided to go up north to uh, Georgia and, and Azerbaijan to be able to cross the Caspian Sea and get into the Central Asian uh, stand countries. Yeah. And you, you spent a while in Georgia as well, right? Because you were taking care of some stuff or applying for Chinese visas, I think. Yes. Uh, I spent, uh, I think, like, I mean, from all the countries I've been to, the place I've been, the, uh, I spent the longest. Overall, I spent over two months in, in Georgia in such a small country. But before starting my trip, since I started in Lisbon, I started doing all my research and I called and everywhere they said uh, to get the Chinese visa, you would you only have three months to be able to get to China before uh, it goes um, like your visa it's invalid. Yeah. So um, I was like, okay, I, I won't be able to make it in three months, so I'm gonna have to apply for the visa in a country before in another country before going to China. But lately, China has changed their like visa pol- applying policy, and like they change all the time and you're not allowed to apply in a country that's your country or the country that you are a resident of or that you're working in. Oh. Um, so when I got to Georgia, I mean, I thought it was going to be an easy task to apply. Um, but yeah, that's what they told me. And uh, uh, it took a while for me to figure out how to uh, get the visa. And that's why I spent so long and so, I mean, so much time in Tbilisi trying to get this visa. And uh, I mean, it's, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, although, even though it took a long time and a lot of like thinking and kind of stress to figure out this visa for China, but Tbilisi is such a great city. And I was, I was, I'm, I'm right now, I'm very happy. I spent two months there. I, I have like really good friends from there. And, Oh, okay. It was really nice. Did you uh, did you have the chance to travel around to other parts of Georgia as well while you were waiting for the visa, or were you just kind of always around the capitals, kind of stuck? I was stuck because at first, like they they said no, I couldn't apply. So I started. For, uh, someone else actually applied and they got it. So um, that person told me how to do it, and I was trying to figure that out. But then the way they did it, I couldn't do it. So I, I had to figure things out before I even had the chance to go around the country and gotcha. explore. So it really kept me on the city most of the time uh, until I got my visa and I was able to just uh, go out. Yeah, well, I've heard awesome things about Georgia as well and Tbilisi. Um, did you take this chance to learn Russian? So, you know, heading off into Central Asia would have been a good opportunity. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean... I was like, when I was in Georgia, like, it's one of the things that a lot of people speak Russian, but more and more people in Georgia are learning English than ah, Russian. Okay. Like, they're not very fond of Russians now no. in Georgia. Um, so, like, young, like younger generations are more toward English. And, um, but even then, like, most people still speak Russian. And I, I was trying to learn, not, like, very dedicated, but I was trying to learn, like, basic stuff to get me through uh I mean, Azerbaijan and the rest of Central Asia. But I think actually I learned a lot more throughout Central Asia than Georgia. <laughs> okay. From Georgia, you headed off into Azerbaijan, right? Can you tell us a story about the walnut? I mean, I, I don't want to ruin the story, so I'm just going to call it the story of the walnut. Um, what is that? What happened? So I think that was the first time I was, I was ever stopped by a police officer throughout my trip. And... It was probably like my third day in Azerbaijan and I was in this road and it didn't say not to ride a bike or like it didn't say really, it didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And at one point it actually had like cycling, a cycling lane and all. So I was cycling there like very normal and two policemen stopped me and kind of just looked at me and they're like, oh, hey, like, what are you? Oh, not in English, but like kind of just like in Russian and translating and with signals and stuff like yeah. that. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to uh, Baku and nothing, no, nothing else. Uh, um, but the things that in back in Spain, I found a car plate, one a European Spanish um, car plate. Okay. I picked it up, and ever since then, I have a car plate in the back of my tire, out of my bike. Yeah. 
so they saw it and like they didn't uh the guy didn't really say anything he just thought it was weird he has like eh, what is that and that was just a card play i found and i trans- translated it and it was fine uh and then they asked me for my passport and as soon as i, I since i traveled to azerbaijan i traveled with my u.s passport so i took out my u.s passport and i gave it to him and i mean it's unfortunate but as soon as he saw it was an american passport he said he like asked me american and i was like yeah and then he's like oh no no no. you you can't have that car plate and like he gave me like he started giving me a hard time and he's like no no you have to you have to pay because you have that car plate and i was like no no like i I started kind of arguing with him and i was like it was fine like two minutes ago why (laughs) why are you giving me trouble now and then he started asking for money and like he told me you can't have that car plate because there's uh, radars here and this and that and he asked for a hundred dollars and i was like well i don't have a hundred dollars uh if if you want i told him like i translate that if you want I, we can go together to back to town and i'll pay in the police station he's like no no, no i'll stay here you go and get the cash uh, and i keep your passport and i was like you're not keeping my passport so i argued with him for a while and then he he went down from a hundred dollars to twenty dollars <laughs> And I still, I, I, I kept arguing with him. Uh, he started looking through some of my stuff and uh, until like he got a call and like he got frustrated with me and he got like walnuts that I had on the back of my bag mm-hmm. and he told me to leave. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that was an instant fix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's looking for a little something, right? Like probably, yeah, I don't know if you were some other country, he might have said anything, but it's just as likely he would have anyways. Yeah, yeah I mean, bearing in mind their salaries are sh- pretty shitty and this and that. Actually, you you made you had one thing in your Instagram that I wanted to mention to you, and you said you noticed a huge difference between Azerbaijan and Turkey with regards to the mosques and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean they're both Muslim majority countries, but once you like, I'm guessing it's like since Azerbaijan was part of the Soviet Union, they had they had more like influence from that era. But Azerbaijan, it's it feels or it felt to me a lot less religious, yeah, or religious, yeah, I guess a lot less religious. And people, although when I met people in person and uh, I met a lot of them in their houses and all that, religion does play a, a big role in their lives and stuff like that. But you don't see as many mosques mm-hmm. on, the, on the cities or on the streets, on the road. Uh, you don't hear the calls for prayer five times a day. Yeah, Things that you hear throughout Turkey, like Turkey is a, a very religious country when it comes to Muslim um, Islam. People, like you see mosques throughout the, the country and you can hear the calls and people, you see the role it plays. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that in Azerbaijan. People, I saw very few mosques. I heard call maybe like twice mm-hmm. when I was in Azerbaijan. So I I think like it, it plays more of a personal private role when it comes to their lives yeah it's not so much of a public uh display of their religion or maybe it's more of a personal intimate uh relationship maybe a big part of that is because turkey is majority sunni muslim yeah yeah azerbaijan is shiite just like iran so it used to be part of iran and then iran gave it up to the soviet union and and then when they became independent then they never got it back so 85% yeah. of Azerbaijan is Shiite Muslim. Yeah. Also, like, I know in, uh, in Shia Islam, they also don't pray five times a day. They combine a couple prayers and they do it three times a day. That's okay. That's, that's good to know. Cause yeah, I mean, the difference, I did see like a, a difference when it, when it came to that. Mm-hmm. And you might have noticed a very similar thing in like, uh, Tajikistan as well. Cause Tajikistan tends to be majority, uh, Shiite Muslim. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. But I think you actually had a good point too. I mean, it could have something to do with the role that the Soviet Union played in as well throughout these more northern countries. So that's that's actually something I never considered. Could be, could be both. How long did you have to wait for the boat to get across for the Caspian? I've heard of stories of people waiting up to like a week. I waited a uh, a couple of days. I got there in the morning, like the afternoon on like the twenty fifth. Mm-hmm. of september if i'm not wrong and i waited there two more nights so i stayed in the port two nights 
uh, waiting for the ferry to arrive. And I don't know if you if you've been to Azerbaijan or if you're taking the ferry. Okay. So basically, there it's a cargo ship, and they if the 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 ferry might be in the port, but they don't leave until they have enough cargo to make the trip worth. Oh, okay. Yeah, because actually, like most of the people that travel on the ferry are truck drivers, and there's only about like, um, if I'm not wrong, but 79 people aboard, including staff. So there's very few people that are actually traveling on the boat. So it's mostly a cargo ship. Okay. If if the if the ferry is not full, they they don't leave until it's convenient, and they don't lose money just by taking the boat across the the Caspian. Gotcha. Um, were there many other cyclists on the, the boat when you went? No, I think by this point, since I stayed so, so long in, in Georgia, by this time, it was, it's late season. It was already yeah. late season for people to start going to Central Asia. It was already getting colder. A few days before, one cyclist had gone through that I knew. And then I was there for a few days and no other cyclist um, was there. But yeah, it was just me and maybe, uh, uh, I think, four more other foreigners. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was the only cyclist at that time. Okay. Can you tell us from Aktau to Dushanbe, I guess, where you'd say is the start of the Pamir Highway, what was it like? What was the ride like? And um, what were some of the highlights on that section? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting because once you hit Central Asia, it's, you can start seeing like a different culture and like different people and like different languages and like it's even different like environment and scenery. Aktau, once you hit Aktau, I mean, I love animals and nature and mm -hmm. like one of the best things as soon as you leave the port of Aktau, you see camels and like they're oh, just yeah. walking around. And so it's such a like cool experience because yeah, here you are like cycling the Silk Road and I think camels are one of like the big symbols of the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. It's like if you think about the Silk Road, it's yeah, Silk of course, and like China and camels are there. Like they're always there, and like it was one of the nicest things. As soon as you leave, you see them, and it's all desert. And once from Aktau to Dushanbe, most of your cycling is gonna be in desert or like cropland. But it's very very nice desert in uh, Kazakhstan. You hit very nice canyons and like very beautiful nights. Uh, in the desert and there's barely any climb it's pretty much flat and the roads are very nice to cycle with so it's it's not a bad uh ride uh okay. it's really nice and how was uh samarkand <laughs> samarkand uh uzbekistan it's like uh i wasn't able to go to turkmenistan yeah it's hard but i think uzbekistan is like a like a version of turkmenistan in the sense how like every city or like every city in Uzbekistan is very clean in like like most public parks like people are cleaning the streets like 24/7 okay and everything's just like very detailed and Samarkand is something like that like the big square like the registrar it's this beautiful mosque and madrasas i think that was the first time i really felt like i was like well this is a silk road like it, okay. it felt so real at that point even though you've been on the road for so long and but once you hit that city it's like this is it like this is where like so many things happen and like Samarkand is, it has such a like important role in Islam mm -hmm. and like in medicine and in education at that and back in the day so many scholars or uh yeah like Muslim scholars uh, went through Samarkand and it has such a rich history in that sense and it's very nice and like architecture is beautiful and people are very nice and stuff but yeah I think it's one of the nicest cities in Central Asia there's actually a observatory it's in the top of the hill it used to be a huge astronomy, like, I guess, lab, probably uh, 400, 500 years ago. Oh, wow. Or more, but it was, it's really nice, and it has a lot of history and how Islam and Muslim astronomy and sciences really help, like, basically everyone, and mm -hmm. it's really nice. It really, really connects your whole trip. In Uzbekistan, did they have any of these, um, uh, what did you call them? Uh, the word is slipping from my mind, but like basically these Silk Road hotels that date back, you know, a thousand years. The Like the caravans, right? Yeah, the caravans. That's like that. Yeah, did you see any and did you have a chance to stay at any? Uh, no, that was, I guess, one of my, I wish I would have seen one, but no, in Uzbekistan, I did not see any 
any any places like that. Okay. Um, the thing with Uzbekistan is there's like the first half is it's all desert. You go from the Aral Sea and then you get to Nukus. And then once you get to Nukus, from Nukus all the way to Samarkand is uh, agriculture land because it's all connected by small, like uh, big and small rivers. So there's a lot of water going on that people have. There's a lot of farmland and there's a lot of cotton and uh, uh, cornfields. Okay. So there's not a lot of places to camp, which is one of the things I didn't like about Uzbekistan. It's, it's a very hard place to kind of find a place to camp because there's so much farmland. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. So from Dushanbe, you, there's the Pamir Highway. There's also the Bartang Valley. Are they... Are they two separate things that you go to or like do you access one from the other? How does that work? So there's probably more, but the, the three more, most popular ways to do uh, Pamir in Tajikistan mm-hmm. is you either go from Bartang Valley, which is the northern route. You go all the way to Korok and take the M41 highway and that's the middle one and then there's the south route which is the Wakan Valley and that's the longer one okay they're not the same the Pamir highway starts in Dushanbe from Dushanbe you go all the way to Korok and you stay on the Pamir highway you cross that's the one in the middle and then you get to Karakul which is the big lake in the north of Tajikistan yeah uh, and that's I think the most popular one for more people when they think about Pamir Highway, Pamir or cycling, that's, I think, everyone plans to do that one. That was my first plan. And then when I got there, someone convinced me to do uh, Bartang Valley. Okay. And uh, I did it, and it was honestly, like, very, very nice. And that was the more northern one, right? So that's going up, like, you're going north from, more northerly from Dushanbe, right? Or north northeast? From Dushanbe. You take the same route as if you're doing the um, the Pamir Highway. You go the same route until you get to a small town called uh, Rushon. From there, if you're going down to the M41, the Pamir Highway, you keep going south. But if you're going uh, to Tang Valley, mm-hmm. you take, let's say, a left into another small river, and then you just follow that river all the way until you can't follow oh, okay. it anymore. That's the northern route, and it's probably the least populated one compared to uh, Pamir and the Wakan Valley in the south. And to do the Wakan Valley, you have to go into Afghanistan and stuff, right? I believe? No. So even for Bartang or Pamir, you have to be in the border for about four days or more. So the border is a river, is the Panch River that divides uh, Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Okay. And there's a road on the side of Tajikistan that literally just follows the river all throughout the border. Okay. And that goes all throughout the Tajikistan border all the way to Karakul. But no, you, you don't have to necessarily go all the way to cross into Afghanistan. Okay, so if you take the Wakan Valley one, then you're you're staying along that river longer and just keep following the border, yeah? Yes, so the Wakan Valley is just basically staying in the border the whole time ah. until you have to leave and go to Karakul. Gotcha. And um, can you tell us about it? I mean, how, how amazing is it or dif- how difficult is it to ride? How was it for you being there probably in like October, November or something? So I said Turkey was my favorite country for a good part of the trip, but I, I've now Tajikistan is like, it's definitely my favorite country really? so far. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice, it's, it's got everything, I think, or not everything, but it's, re- it's very nice. And it's a, it's a, first, it's just a country that's still very, I think it's very true to, to its people or like to its culture, I guess. So there's, there's not a lot of Western or even East. Eastern influence from China or Western from Europe. And people are still have a lot of like their culture and their customs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And when it comes to like landscapes, it's it's incredible. I did the Bartang. So I went from Dushanbe to Rushan. And then from there I took upstream. Mm-hmm. From Dushanbe to, to Rushan, I did a week and I had a, um, a French rider with me. Mm-hmm. So we cycled together for that part of the trip, and he kept going to do the M41. So that was that was nice. I was I had someone to cycle with for that time, and then after that, I kept going on the Bartang, and 
I did the bartending because uh, this couple, they had done it maybe a week before and they said it was like incredible and they really liked it and uh, you should really like, they're like, you should really consider doing it, da, 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 this and that. Um, they showed me some pictures and they told me a few things they did and I was like, I was pretty convinced when they when they explained it. So when I actually started doing it, my bike uh, broke. <laughs> oh, shit. No. Um, I was, yeah, I was probably like, it was my second day on the Bartang River yeah. Valley, and um, the back wheel hub completely cracked. It was just, it didn't do anything. Like, I would pedal, and my bicycle would not move one inch. Like, it was completely busted. So, I mean, I had either, I had the option of either walking back or keep going. So, I, of course, decided to uh, keep going by just walking and pushing my uh, bike. Mm -hmm. So, for the rest of the Bartang, I spent another six, seven, eight days uh, just pushing my bike on the Bartang Valley. But, uh, man, it, it was so awesome. I think the amazing thing about this, this part of Tajikistan is that there's not a lot of people. I mean, there's not a lot of people in Tajikistan, period. But in yeah. this valley, there's even less people. There's only a few villages. And then you get to the last village. And after that, you have a natural park or a, yeah, like a natural national park. Mm -hmm. And there is no villages or there's no people for about 100 kilometers. For about three days, there's no people or no villages. So you're really out there by yourself, especially in that time of year that I was, it was November. There's very few people traveling by bike. Yeah. When I was there, like uh, the, the locals were like, oh, you like you're the first cyclist we ever see coming here in November. Like there, there's a lot of cyclists coming here in summer and fall, but November is late season and it gets really cold and it could be dangerous and to be honest like they they did scare me <laughs> a little when they talked to me because they were giving me all these warnings about um going up to the to the plateau and with a broken bike i was yeah. like oh how am i doing this uh, should i really do this take all this risk i was prepared in terms of like equipment and stuff like that so i trusted myself and it was really nice i mean they what they said it was true it was very very cold and animals were out there but it was really nice and it, it's incredible that part of the trip it's definitely the the highlight of the whole trip i think it's on my bucket list but i think that it's gonna have to go to the top of the bucket so yeah <laughs> yeah i mean if, if you can see what i've posted and i mean there's many other people that have done it you you're probably gonna put that up there too <laughs> okay do you have travel insurance when you're doing this because like if something were to happen up there and you're all alone and there's no other cyclists around so i didn't i did only for a few months for every place and uh it was affordable for me to do it mm -hmm. and uh i i actually didn't and I was just very, I was being very careful and kind of just trusting myself to be honest, but no, I, I, I didn't. Okay. Have you had any occasions throughout the, the tour where you felt you were in danger? Not at all, I think. I mean, cycling on the road, of course, like there's always that you always got to be careful. But I think that's the only thing that I've I've had. Like, I've never had any occasions where I camp and I feel like somebody may be coming after me or like maybe animals or anything like that. Yeah. No, no, no. I've never had any any times that I felt in danger. Awesome. I mean, that's great. Yeah. How do you feel you've grown and changed as a person through doing this trip? Or do you feel you've grown and changed as a person through this trip? Well, okay. <laughs> One thing I, I think I, I guess I've noticed back or like a year ago, I consider myself to be like a social person and like because I'm nice and stuff like that. But I'm not one to like go out of my way to like speak to people and like be out there and like communicate and like mm -hmm. maybe sit next to somebody else and start a conversation and stuff like that. And that's one thing in this trip has definitely changed. Now I not only because so many people like now it's so natural for me to just like stop and like, hey, how are you? Or like someone stops me and they ask me where I'm from or like what am I doing that it, it, it becomes natural for me to do that too so I think I've become more like more open and more welcoming in that sense and now I'm like I'm not like a parrot talking to everyone but I, I, I do open up a lot more and I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've become more open and more vocal in that sense awesome and um, how much longer do you have in your trip I mean I know you're in Chengdu China now and this is the last country on your tour yeah. Well, I'm planning, I'm planning, my visa only allows me to stay in China for 30 days. Okay. 
Um, so I'm planning on writing the 30 days and then applying for an extension visa, which it's, appears not to be too complicated. So I'll be doing that and I'll be extending it for another month and I'll be finishing all the way through Shanghai. And once that second month, even a little before that, I would be flying back home. So I only have about a month and a half. Okay. Um, so from Chengdu, you're going to cycle towards Shanghai or some other direction? I'm going straight to Shanghai just because uh, I was planning on going a little bit south. But because of time and, of mm -hmm. course, visa and all that. And China is so big and it's not a flat country. So yeah. And there's also so many yeah. good places that you can visit if you also go in a straight line. So I'm going to go straight to Shanghai. There's a uh, few cities. Next city that I'm going, can pronounce it, uh, Chang, Chang, Changsha, Ching, something like that. Um, Changsha. Yeah. Or Chongqing. Uh, I will be going Chongqing, Chongqing. Yeah, it's really close to Chengdu, mm -hmm. um, and it's almost is east of here. So I'll be going there next, and I'm just gonna keep going my uh, making my way there. China's it's such a big country, and I mean I'm I'm very surprised how like developed this country is, and um, it's 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 wild. What uh what's been the total cost of this adventure? I don't have like a exact budget for it, but counting all the flight, like the first flight and all, even the bike, I'm at about $7,000. Nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And I mean, and you, you know, you had family visiting. So when you have family, you tend to do more touristy stuff too. And yeah. And you did take buses and stuff when you needed to. So rather than put yourself in dangerous yeah, situations. Yeah. And ferries and stuff. Yeah. Are you sad it's almost over? Yes, I'm like, I guess it hasn't really hit me yet, but I'm I'm more and more often thinking about how I'm going to be done in a couple of months, even weeks. But I'm also excited to go back and kind of just see what's next and actually start planning the next one. But, but yeah, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little sad and I'm almost done. Yeah, I feel you. Um, I was going to ask that actually is have you put any thought into what comes next for, for Pablo? Well, in terms of cycling, I'm not sure yet. I'm, uh, in terms of anything, to be honest, I'm not sure yet. Uh, but I'm, I really do want to plan a next trip. Maybe not so long because I don't think I have the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I would rather do smaller trips more often instead of longer trips. Uh, so I, I'm planning on maybe doing a Colombia trip, a cycling trip next. Nice. Um, so just maybe just go throughout Colombia and bike maybe a couple of months. Um, and I also got another cyclist reached out uh, about three weeks or two weeks ago. And he's doing a trip from Japan to Morocco. Uh, and he, he he's asking cyclists to join him and his trip is a total of two years he said ah okay yeah he said anyone can join at any point for as long as they want so i mean that's an, that's another option if i maybe decide to go when he's in africa mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. so it is yeah it just i just gotta think it through yeah where can people find you if they want to know more about you or if they want to donate to the charity or anything like that as well yes please thank you right now i'm mostly using instagram my Instagram is at Pablo Espitia. Right there, I put all my information. The link on the on my bio is for the fundraising page. Uh, but my Instagram is everything I have. Um, I post all my stories, pictures, information, and my fundraising information there too. And I'll I'll definitely add links to that. And um, do you actually have a foundation page that you have that's running for fundraising or is it just a GoFundMe at the moment or how is it working? So it's it's a GoFundMe at the moment. Once I get to the States back in the States, I will have to go through the university to set it up. Okay. So uh, once I get that done, that'll, that'll be it, to be honest. And it would have to go through the university, which I think will be a lot better. But for the moment, it's just, it's just a GoFundMe page. Okay. And I'll, I'll add a link to that as well into the um, blog post I'll write about this on my website. So anybody that's interested can check it all out there. Otherwise, Pablo, thank you for giving me your time. I know it's, uh, it's hard sometimes when you're traveling and like to say, okay, I'm going to sit down for a couple hours with somebody and talk about my trip when I could be out sightseeing or cycling around or whatever. So I really do appreciate your time. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely keep in touch, follow each other and uh, maybe our paths will cross somewhere. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, it was really nice talking. I haven't, I haven't really spoken this long actually in English for a while. So <laughs> um, it's really nice. <laughs>
it, it's really nice uh, having this conversation too. Hopefully people can get something out of it and uh, get inspired and go out and cycle and meet people and meet places and eat food. Thank you so much and uh, ride safely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. In the next episode, I'll be catching up with Jonas Dykman, a German adventurer that has just finished his Cape to Cape Challenge. Attempting to set a world record, Jonas is going to talk us through some of the challenges, difficulties, successes, and the kit he used throughout this latest challenge. Stay tuned and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.